Hey there, everyone. This is Dan Fagella here with Tech Emergence, where we interview investors, entrepreneurs, and researchers in the domain of emerging technology. Today, I have one of my favorite TED Talk speakers, who's also a lecturer at Stanford University, in addition to uh, the author of the new book, Net Smart, as well as many other works, the very prolific Mr. Howard Rheingold. Professor, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, indeed. I'm glad we're able to catch up today. One of the, the um, things I believe you're known for uh, best four, in addition to your written work, obviously your, your uh, TED Talk with the orange jacket, which many folks have seen or would be reminded of if they saw again, um, is the dynamic of collaboration and sort of that as, as its own dynamic in nature and in human life um, that potentially goes against or works alongside the dynamic of uh, competition. I'd, I'd like if, if we could first just kind of get into your, your understanding and kind of pre-framing of that dynamic. Well, uh, I would say that Cooperation and competition are complementary. Got it. It's not so, not so much works against. And this is pretty much a new understanding. Uh, the, the, the world that pays attention to science has been operating under a narrative about human behavior that goes back to the early days after Darwin. Mm. Everybody knows about you know, survival of the fittest. Yep. Nature red tooth and claw, and the, and the role of competition, and of course in uh, mercantile life and business life, competition is a very big part of of capitalism. Competition is an essential part of the uh, dealings between nations. That narrative actually is obsolete. It's taking a little while for the news to get around. Hmm. But what what we understand. From the biology of the smallest microorganisms to the biology of ecosystems to the scientific study of human behavior and institutions, and now particularly to the way people use technologies such as social media and mobile media to coordinate uh, what sociologists call collective action, it's become very clear that the, the role of competition is still important, uh, but it needs to shrink in order to include all of the, the new knowledge about uh, cooperative uh, arrangements and, and different kinds of uh, collective activity. So we're really just at the beginning of understanding the biology, the sociology, the politics, and the technology of cooperation, but there are some things that are, are fairly undisputed. One is that uh, we are humans and we live in a human civilization that dominates the, the planet because of our ability to use and create communication media that enable us to do things together in new ways. And the evidence seems to indicate that these media and these new ways of cooperating were prompted by dire threats to the existence of the human species. So huh. climate change maybe 80 to 100,000 years ago um, through uh, DNA studies indicates that, that the human population may have been reduced to a, f a few thousand. Whoa. And that, that is a, approximately the time when human speech seemed to have emerged. Mm. Then there was the emergence of writing about 10,000 years ago that was contemporaneous with, with agriculture. And so suddenly a big change in the way humans uh, operate humans had been roaming the planet as hunters and gatherers for 
hundreds of thousands of years. Relatively recently, 10,000 years ago, we started to, to live in settlements, practice agriculture. Not everybody had to be involved in, in food gathering. People could, could specialize. All kinds of institutions arose like, like, like cities. And, um, and the world we live in today really goes back to that. You could move that forward and talk about the, um, the way writing became a mass medium with printing, about the telegraph, the telephone, the television, and particularly the internet. I'm mentioning technologies, but each of these technologies really enable people to do things together in new ways. And, and what we now understand about competition and cooperation, down to the cellular level, is that every living organism always has to make a calculation and balance between self-interest, protecting yourself, and taking the risk of collaborating or entering into collective action yeah. with others. And as I said, this goes all the way from, from cells to, to ecosystems as well as humans. And in humans, it's known as the social dilemma. And quite often, social dilemmas are instances in which individual rationality based on self-interest adds up to collective irrationality. So it's certainly rational for me to jump in my car and drive somewhere. When you've got a few billion people doing that, it adds up to a, a planetary level threat. Yes. So how do people manage social dilemmas? There was a, a very famous paper called The Tragedy of the Commons in the 1960s. That was written uh, yeah. by a scientist by the name of Garrett Hart, who was concerned with population growth. And he noted that when humans have a commons, an area that nobody owns, that everybody is free to, to graze their cattle or their sheep on, not out of any kind of maliciousness, but just out of self-interest, people try to maximize the amount of cattle or sheep that they can graze. And if everybody does that, it overgrazes the 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 grasslands turn into a desert and everybody loses. He called this the tragedy of the commons. Tragedy being something that's inevitable, mm. that humans will always despoil. Huh. Um, about 10 years later, a scientist by the name of Eleanor Ostrom asked the question that all good scientists should ask, which is, well, what does the evidence show? So she spent many years studying water-sharing uh, arrangements in the ports in Southern California, water-sharing arrangements that went back uh, thousands of years in places like uh, Spain and, um, and Bali, uh, the way people shared forest resources, fisheries. And she came to the conclusion that there are instances in which people solve the social dilemma and create what she called institutions for collective action, some kind of loose rules that enable people to use a common resource without despoiling it. So the tragedy of the commons, the social dilemma, as she said, the, 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 the prisoner's dilemma is the, the formal name for the... the yes. That. The, the prisoner's dilemma is only a prison for people who, who believe it to be a prison. That you can work your way out of it. You can come up with some rules. You can define who's in the group, who's out of the group, um, what the rules for consumption are, what the, what the sanctions for breaking that are, how to change the rules. So we create arrangements that enable us uh -huh. to cooperate. And that cooperation enriches us all. 
the, the web and the internet are, are perfect examples Indeed. of that. The, the web was not created by the government or by a corporation. It was created by millions of people creating web pages and, and linking to yep. each other. And this is a commons because nobody can be denied access. As long as you've got a computer that connects, you can pay your connection fees, you can create a uh, server on, on the internet. Uh, if you want. And I would note that that does not prevent people from creating private property. The, True. The, the web is a commons, but Google is worth a lot of money, and so is Microsoft and Amazon and, and many others. So we're just beginning to understand these complexities. I worked with Institute for the Future for yeah. a few years to try, to try to create the foundation for an interdisciplinary study of cooperation and collective action and in fact you can you can find what what we've discovered at a website cooperationcommons.com and I teach courses on uh, cooperation if you go to bit.ly slash cooperation course I think that we need a much a larger interdisciplinary effort to understand and a, and a much larger effort to communicate what we now understand about cooperation and collective action. You mentioned collaboration. Indeed. And that's a, that's a more specific part. You know, you've got coordination, you've got um, collective action, you've got collaboration. Those all take different levels of communication and commitment. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to look at the uh, the dynamics simply implied with those different words: collaboration, coordination. Uh, cooperation. There, there's there's a lot of different dynamics there, and invariably, language is also a barrier to understanding. Potentially, could be because those even those words are somewhat limiting. But it's it's interesting to see the overlap. And and I'm curious. I I, I am very congenial with the notion that understanding the dynamics and benefits of collaboration um, is is more than worth studying and furthering as a field. Moving forward as a species with the internet, with you know our fancy dancy cell phones and our social media tools, um, do you see the understanding and proliferation of collaboration sort of taking off in the right ways, uh, and and maybe some of the more detrimental facets of we could call it competition or conflict fading? I know that you know x number of thousands of years ago there were the various rival you know roving herds. That hunted their animals and hunted one another when they came close to each other, and uh, you know now we live in a relatively mixed society and we do decently well and have commerce with other companies. I mean, other countries and and, and many of those sort of tribal barriers are sort of opened up. Do you think that um, we will continue to be more and more open to, and the world will be more conducive to uh, the kinds of cooperation and collaboration you speak of, or um, where do you see that trend heading? Well, I think it depends. The reason I wrote my latest book, Net Smart, is because I've been I've been writing about technologies and what people do with them for about thirty years now. Indeed. And I, I wrote a book called Tools for Thought in the nineteen eighties about where personal computers were going. And I wrote a book called Smart Mobs in two thousand and two about how people were using mobile phones and the internet to organize political uh, collective action. Of course, we're seeing a great deal. Of that today, and um, and all along the way, the question was asked of me by journalists and, and critics, and I asked myself: Are these new tools that are being adopted by so many people? Are they ultimately are they good for us as individuals, 
for our relationships, for our society, for yeah. human civilization. And, and I've concluded, after really literally decades of thinking about it, that the answer at this point is it depends on what people know and how many people know it. That it's a matter of literacy. Just as we saw when the invention of the printing press um, changed the access to literacy from a, a tiny elite that was chosen by the rulers to pretty much everybody uh, who could learn to read and write. They could get a book. And, um, and we saw the democratic revolutions that overthrew monarchies and, and created constitutions. We saw the emergence of science as a, an organized activity. But that took 50 to 100 years after the invention of the printing press to begin. And the, and the gap was due to the time it takes <coughs> me, for the literacy to spread and for people to understand what they can do together with the new means of communication. So let me just note that, that the computers we use today with the screen and the mouse the icons, the, the video, um, hyperlinks, all yeah. those things were invented by a team that was put together by one man by the name of Doug Engelbart in the 1960s. And Engelbart was, was originally motivated by um, his need to address the problem he saw right after World War II of suddenly science is creating more knowledge than than people can encompass, that progress is going too fast. We need to be able to have tools to work together, to collaborate, to understand this world that was emerging, a very technological world, after World War II. Yes. Now, he was funded by the U.S. Defense Department, but his objective, if you read his original paper, paper it's called Augmenting Human Intellect. You can look it up on the web. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. Great incredibly visionary paper, 1962. Well ahead of his time. Well ahead of his time. Um, he talked about how we might be able to solve problems together, to collaborate together better if we had certain things. And he had a framework that he called humans using language, artifacts, methodology, and training. And the artifacts that, that he and his team created, putting words on a screen, the idea that you could manipulate words on a screen instead of having to type them on a typewriter. Using a mouse uh, as a pointing device to uh, command a computer. The use of hyperlinks to jump from document to document. All of those came from Engelbart's group. Those were just the artifacts. And I've, I've talked with uh, Engelbart many times over the years. Um, sadly, he died uh, last year. But in our conversations, he, he always noted that the artifacts have uh, developed so fantastically. You know, if you have a, a smartphone in your pocket, it's about 250,000 times more powerful than the computing power in the Voyager satellite that just left the solar system. Hmm. Uh, but the, the, the methodology and the training part of it, the literacy, how do we learn to use these to work together, that part has not evolved as rapidly. So again, as I said, the critical uncertainty is the spread of the literacy. That's why I wrote NetSmart. And we're seeing pe people spread literacies on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. This certainly affects education and training in the sense that schools used to have a monopoly on knowledge. 
And nowadays, ask any 14-year-old how to do anything from using a, a new power tool to configuring a Linux server, they will immediately go to YouTube yes, and indeed. do a search. And there's another 14-year-old who's, who's demonstrating how <laughs> So we now have yeah. a kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning capability. What we don't have is a widespread capability for doing peer learning. We've all been trained in school to be good citizens of a 19th and 20th century civilization. Yeah. One in which you file into your classroom quietly, you sit in your rows and your columns, you listen to the teacher and you memorize what the teacher tells you and you regurgitate it for the test. Now we're beginning to see emerging people who are involved in peer-to-peer -peer learning. In fact, with a number of volunteers, I created a handbook for peer learning. It's called peeragogy.org, P-E-E-R-A-G-O-G-Y.org. It's free. You can access the website. You can download the PDF. If you want to spend 20 bucks, you can go buy the, the book from Amazon. But the point there is that we need to spread the knowledge of how do we use these tools and the knowledge that's available to us to, to learn anytime, anywhere, with anybody, because I think we, we particularly need to do that. And of course, collaboration is built into what I'm talking about. I'm talking about collaborative learning, but I think that collaborative learning and learning how to collaborate is really a predecessor to how are we going to get the, you know, all of the billions of people on the planet working together towards our own survival. We're facing some very serious threats to the survival of our species. Definitely. Our, our, our most important asset are the, the billions of human brains on the planet and the human culture that we've created. And and that's where I'd, I'd like to delve into next, with the, with the exception of one last question as well. But leading there, um, I, I'm, I'm rather, I, I, I happen to be of the leaning that um, many of these most important aggregately beneficial results that, that we we tend to to desire for our environment or you know populating space or even decisions to make about how those things happen and whether we do them or not um, or about you know you'd mentioned augmenting intelligence you know about you know what the steps are beyond Google Glass and beyond whatever that is and beyond whatever that is um, and and how how those transitions happen how we leverage them and how we ultimately build towards an aggregately better future as a human race. I think that that's going to involve psychology, philosophy, uh, all the various sciences, and, and hopefully a well-intended united effort from people. I happen to think that that as an overarch, that as kind of a mindset, seeing collaboration as beneficial, seeing collaboration as, as fitting, as benevolent, as good, as noble around the world will be arguably the greatest and most conducive Force to us actually building a future that ends up being better. So I happen to be of that belief. Um, I, I'm not sure what your thoughts are there as well. Are you kind of congenial with that notion of that us realizing collaboration is beneficial is likely to yield the, the, the greatest results and the best kind of pooled insights from everybody? Well, keep in mind that humans collaborate to do beneficial things and humans collaborate they do, they do. So, just uh, amplifying our ability to collaborate is not enough. Yeah, but doing doing uh, that, to yeah, with it, yeah. That it's in their self Got it. To 
collaborate with others in a way that's uh, beneficial to all of us. Aggregately so beneficial, yeah. Yes, so that's partially a, a political issue. It's partially an educational issue. But I think, above all, it's a narrative issue. It's how do we tell the story of, of how this is good for you. Um, and so, that, you know, I think that's exciting. That's what we are doing right now. It's what you are doing. I think just challenging the assumption that human behavior is ruled by competition and that you're a sucker if you join into collective action um, without getting a direct benefit from it, that for, to, to point out to people that the web is a tremendous resource because uh, people put things into it, that classic economic theory based on rational self-interest would say that Wikipedia would not be possible. Yeah. Uh, they would say that, that open source operating systems, which by the way are um, what you know, Linux servers are what power Google and, and Amazon and all of the other big cloud companies they're using an operating system that was created by programmers who were not paid, who did not know each other, but used online media to collaborate to create something that they felt was important for them. So we know that people can do that. We, we know that Wikipedia exists. We know that the web exists. We know that open source software exists. We now, now need to um, show people ways in which we can agree to share resources. Uh, there must be a way uh, to cut down on traffic congestion by getting people to agree to different ways of using their automobiles. Yeah. You know, for example, in, in downtown London, you are allowed to drive on alternate days depending on whether your license plate ends up in an odd number or an even number. That's very interesting. So that's an, that's an example of an institution for collective action. Um, how, how can we... I think that understanding all of these topics we're talking about, A, ought to be a, a, a much better funded and much more widely understood scientific collaboration effort. And B, we need to be able to educate people about what we now know about a collaboration cooperation. So we certainly have our work cut out for us. Yes. It's not that the problem is impossible. It's, it's not that we don't know the road towards a solution. Um, but uh, more people need to get the word. So that everybody listening to this can help spread that new narrative. You know, that's how really there's a, a, a quote by a, a poet um, by the name of Muriel Roy Kaiser that, that says the universe is made of stories, not atoms. And, and we live by stories. And science is a story that tells people we can find out that our children are not dying because of witchcraft or sin or foreigners. They're dying because of microorganisms in our water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So science, the scientific method is a methodology. It's also a story about knowledge and what's legitimate knowledge and how do we find it. And there was a political battle over that story, Galileo and the church. So it's true. It's a, it's a complicated issue. 
They live in a complicated civilization. We have complicated problems. Our our solutions can't be too simple. Indeed, and and on on the topic of solution is the last uh, note here. Um, it seems as though you know increasing collaboration is more than conducive to a lot of good, although has the potential for for the opposite. Um, it also seems as though I, I happen to believe that, and and uh, I think you hearken to something along these lines that um, a general well-intendedness and an understanding of ha having kind of an explicit aim at a well-intended universal uh, result and, and aggregately beneficial results for, for other folks and for humanity in general. I think that that as sort of a mindset and aim of focus, again, having a well-intended front, um, A, it might be necessary for a lot of our collaboration, but B, um, probably should be part of it if we're aiming to land somewhere good. It seemed to me as though you had mentioned that in order to do that, we ought make it more clear how people can benefit themselves from collaborating, how else might, might we aid that respect, that, that overall understanding of having kind of that noble aim and objective, um, in addition to kind of adding the game theory benefits, how else might that be bolstered in this world that's moving forward so quickly? Well, um, the research, research has shown that, that people who mistrust each other are more likely to increase their trust and therefore be more likely to collaborate or enter into collective action if they, they, they can see that they have something in common. Huh. And, and you can see this with fashion. Um, Interesting. So with, if you're a teenager and you're a goth, uh, you can spot each other on the street and you know that you have something in common. Yeah. Um, some of the, the research on... Um, evolution of human cultural practices uh, explains uh, dialects. Why do languages have slightly different versions called dialects? Mm. Well, a dialect or an accent is a way of, of determining very quickly in the dark whether a stranger is likely to be a friend or a foe. Oh. So as soon as we can find something in common, we are much more likely uh, to to collaborate, you know, in the New Guinea Islands, where there's a lot of uh, intertribal violence, when two strangers meet, they sit down and they talk about who their relatives are to see if they can find some kind of connection that would mean that they don't have to fight. It, it seems so a shame that we would. How do we yeah. connect people? It's you know, odd. Music does that. Religion does that. True. Finding ways to connect people rather than to separate people is one tool. So being able to find that thing in common, it, it would seem it would seem a shame if we needed the same clothes or the same great uncle in order to ever get along. It, it would seem as though I suppose the the ideal, in some respects, uh, from some ethical perspectives, might be to to have a bit of the Martin Luther conception of being man as kind of enough in terms of a commonality to to wish well and and bring good. You know, it's, it's, it it doesn't have to be. Uh, narrowly sectarian. Uh, yeah, yeah. That you can you can get people to communicate uh, with each other. Uh, they will likely find common interests. Indeed. So hey, if if you and I ran into each other on the street and I had my orange jacket on and you had your orange jacket on, maybe we'd get along. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anybody who doesn't get it, you got to watch the uh, the TED talk with uh, Professor Reingold. Uh, Howard, thank you so much for taking the time here at Tech Emergency. If people want to learn more about you, I know you have 
50 books. I wouldn't want to rattle them all off. Your most recent is NetSmart. They can also visit RyanGold.com, which I'll make sure I link to on the blog. Anything else that's cool, fun, interesting that you'd like to let other folks know about? Well, I am uh, organizing a course. It's, it is a paid course. It takes six weeks. It's online called Illiteracy and Cooperation that looks at what we know about the biology, the cultural evolution, the social science, the technology of cooperation. And uh, you can look at, at, at bit.ly slash cooperation course, one word, to get more information about it. It starts cool. April 30th and goes through June 12th. Very good. Okay, fantastic. I'll make sure I link up to that too. Howard, thank you for being here on Tech Emergence. Sure. My pleasure. Great. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>